Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to the Ladies Promoting Transparent Advocacy Podcast. I am your podcast host, Shay Pate. Hey everybody, on this Marvelous Motivating Monday, I decided to change today's topic to Money Movement Monday. And the reason why I'm doing that is on Saturday I was watching something and as you know me, I'm always flipping through the channels. And I found um, an article that was, um, and I'm going to play actually the interview that Eamon did on MSNBC with a guy talking about the inequity of wealth um, during the pandemic. Now, we know there's always been inequity of wealth, but the numbers are startling how the rich got really rich. And then they broke it down by class. The whites got $25 trillion more then the second group was uh, African Americans. Now keep in mind the whites got twenty five trillion. Uh, African Americans got one point five trillion. That's like one twenty fifth of the whites. And then the Latino community only got like six hundred billion. They're not even in the trillions. And this is real discerning. So I did a whole bunch of um, research and. It's just really wild. L.A. Times did an article, and it's entitled um, COVID Economic Inequality. And I'm just going to read some of it. And they were saying how the scandalous, uneven, and unjust distribution of America's economic gains over the past half century has affected society in countless ways, visible in our systems of politics, governance, education, and housing. And that's really interesting because, as you know, all four of those areas are affected according to income, race, and where you live. And that's the first thing they talk about. And they said when it comes to the pandemic, inequality has been manifested in what the indispensable, I don't know who he is, but his name is Andy Slavic, the former Medicare and Medicaid director under President Obama, described in a recent tweet. And he says, as denial of science, a health system marked by neglect, massive disparities between rich and poor and black and white and cruelty and bullying unmourned losses. We are going through a period of extended trauma. We witnessed it all. Denial of science, a health system marked by neglect, massive disparity, like I said, between the rich and the poor, blacks and whites. That's pretty powerful. And he tweeted this on October 2nd, 2021. uh, The article goes on to say it's no secret that economic equality causes a host of social pathologies. The grave moral consequences of stagnant growth and widening inequality were laid out in frightening details by the excuse me, by the economist Benjamin M. Friedman in a 2005 book and subsequent pages. Wow. You know, it's so funny that this is going way back. So now you don't edit the pandemic in it. Now, a lot of people don't know what the GDP is. And I'm just going to kind of talk about that because they said in 2020, the GDP was 20.94 trillion averaging out $254,203 for a four-person household. Wow. I don't know that many people with four-person households that make that kind of money. Obviously, the typical household didn't collect that much. Correct. They said that the medium income for a four-person family was $79,900. So you talk about $254,000 versus let's say rounded up 80,000, that's a big difference. In other words, while the size of the U.S. economy has nearly quadrupled and the average economic share per person has gained about 2.6-fold, medium household income has only risen by 46%. Much more wealth is flowing to the wealthy. Wow. Well, you know, it was saying that um, not necessarily a majority, but a vocal polarity see the national economy as a battle between the us and thems kind of like Tyler Perry showed a half and half nots this is really just 
I'm, 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 you know, when I was reading this, I was trying to figure out how much to talk about because, you know, it's no secret that it's the us and the thems. And it's no secret that the thems keep getting more than the us. But I'm going to read part of this article that talks about the distribution of wealth so you can see how bad it is in the United States from 1990 to 2021. Now, this is not in the L.A. time. I, I like to do statistics when we're talking about numbers. I always tell people, do your research, check your facts. And I never heard of this um, web page. It was um, about statistics, statista.com. And they were talking about um, the research they did on August 9th, 2021. In the first quarter of 2021, the share of net wealth in the United States held by the top 10% increased slightly from the previous quarter to 69.8%. But at the beginning of 1990, this figure stood at 60.5%. During this period, the wealth share of the 90th to 99th percentile remained broadly constant at around 37%, while the share of the top 1% increased from 23.5% to net wealth, I mean, of net wealth to 32.1%. Wow. I mean, you know, when I read stuff like this that is obvious, I try to go and look at what can we do? How do we fix it? And, um... I found an article that is actually called, How Do We Fix It? But I want to read something real quick in the statistic thing. And it's entitled, um, this is an organization called inequality.org. Sorry, y'all. That's my dog. She's uh, needing attention. I apologize. She normally doesn't do this when I record. So I found another um article in inequality.org is called Update Billionaires Wealth U.S. Job Losses and Pandemic Prof Prof Profiteers. Oh, excuse me. Profiteers. Sorry. So Bonanza 2020, a report looking at pandemic profiteering and billionaire wealth. Billionaires are extracting wealth at a time when essential workers are pushed into the viral line of fire. And of course, they were showing the net worth as of March 18th of 2020. And of course, Jeff Bezos, number one, Elon Musk, and then Bill Gates is three, Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett. Those are the top five. Now, it's really interesting because ordinary Americans have not feared as well as billionaires during the pandemic. Nearly 14.9 million have fallen ill with the virus and 284,000 have died from it. John Hopkins is bigger than that, I'm sure, by now. When I'm, this is, I got this article yesterday, so I'm kind of, hmm, do your research on this one. It says collective work income of rank and file private sector employees, all hours, work times, the hours, wages of the entire bottom, 82%. Of the workforce declined by 2.3% from mid-March to mid-October, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistic data. Nearly 67 million lost work between March 21st and October 7th, 2020, and 20 million were collecting unemployment on November 14th, 2020. 98,000 businesses have permanently closed. So, as I said, when I do stuff like this, I try to find solutions and it was really interesting. I found an article saying how to fix economic inequality. Now, I don't know. This is a um, this is an institute, actually, that I found it at. And I was really, really um, <laughs> curious of what they was going to say. So I am going to read what they say. Except for decades, a gap has been grown between the rich and poor and advanced economies, especially in the United States. Then the coronavirus pandemic struck, costing over a million lives globally by the end of October 2020 and setting off the worst global recession in nearly a century. The people most valuable to a health and economic shock have been hit the hardest. Well... I want to know how to fix it, because that's what the name of the article is. 
So I kept going, and the name of this institute is actually called Peterson Institute. So they're saying that most of the research that they came up with from the Peter Institute was from a 2019 conference on combating inequality. Later work from attending experts and other uh, institute publications. So the question still is how to fix it. Well, I really and truly don't understand some of the stuff that they're saying about how to fix it. It's just a lot of charts about pre-tax income growth um, of the bottom 50% of population relative to 1980. There's a lot of charts on here, and I was trying to figure out by looking at the charts how I could still give you a solution. And I'm looking at them, as you can hear the pages, and I still don't get it because they're saying inequality between the poorest and richest people in the world has noticeably declined in recent decades. Mm. And they claim in trade has been a critical driver of this improvement, cutting the number living in extreme poverty, those living on less than a dollar and 25 cents a day. Wow. Dang, we spend that on nothing. By half since 1990, according to the World Bank total trade as a share of GDP in developing countries, has doubled since 1985. Well, I, I'm disappointed because I was really, really um, falling into the, the, the headline of how to fix it because this really ain't telling me how to fix it. They're saying wealth, uh, financial security for families, it compromises the value of assets such as a home or corporate stocks minus outstanding debt such as a mortgage or student loans. Wealth is much more concentrated among the top tier of wealth holders with, ho with households in the top 10% of the wealth distribution in high income countries owning more than half. Wow, that's ain't fixing it. I like to do some of my stuff live so y'all can hear some of the challenges I have. Now, that was an article from an institute that I had never heard of, but um, it said how to fix it, and nothing came out of that for me. But I did find a um, another article from Brookings. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization, and it was actually pretty extensive. So it's saying, its title was called, it's, you can find it at brookings.edu which, as you know, means education. And there was an article called Closing the Racial Wealth Gap Requires Heavy Progressive Taxation on Wealth. Now, the title in itself I like because we know that all the money's going to the top. Now, they're saying, I want to read some of this article because this actually was a very extensive article, and it's saying centuries of discrimination and exploitation have left black Americans much poorer than white Americans. Now, I read some of the statistics at the beginning of this episode talking about 25 trillion more money went into the white communities compared to 1.5 trillion in the blacks. And then in the Latino community, it didn't even hit the trillions. It only hit the billions. I mean, I don't want to say only because billions is a lot of money. Now, that doesn't even include the other races. So I want to make sure I'm not excluding anyone. I'm just giving you the numbers and they always focus, it seems like, on the first three top races in America. But this article is breaking it down literally between black and white. And by looking at the webpage, this looks like a African-American nonprofit organization. And since that's what I am, I'm going to talk about it. This article I found last night, and it's saying the median white household has a net worth 10 times. Did you hear that? 10 times that of the median black household. The black households held a share of the national wealth in proportion to the share of the United States population. It would amount to $12.68 
in household wealth rather than the actual sum of $2.54 trillion. Now, here's the funny thing. This article says $2.54. The CNN article that I saw over the weekend was just $1.5. That's a whole trillion more, so I'm not really sure which article is... which. Well, this came from December 2020, and the information I told you about and you'll hear about on uh, MSNBC, not CNN, I'm sorry... Is was done Saturday, so I don't know which number is considered accurate, but as I always say, do your research. And so she's saying, by any program to close the racial wealth gap must grapple with the reality of wealth concentration in contemporary America. The 400 richest American billionaires have more total wealth than all 10 million black American households combined. Black households have about 3% of all household wealth, while the 400 wealthiest billionaires have 3.5% of all household wealth in the United States. Because wealth in the United States is so highly concentrated, and because the wealthiest Americans are almost exclusively white, the racial wealth gap is also concentrated among the wealthiest families. Indeed, if the wealth gap were completely eliminated for all, but the richest 10% of households, the total racial wealth gap would still be more than $8 trillion, 80% of the total wealth gap that exists today. So any plan to eliminate the total racial wealth gap requires, in addition to a transform, excuse me, a transformative national investment in black households and communities, a program of heavy and highly progressive taxation aimed at the very wealthiest Americans. Now see, this article is giving information on how we can change some of this. You know, it's saying a progressive agenda to close the racial wealth gap would likely include reforms to income and estate taxation, plus new taxes on wealth and inheritance, but um, by substantial investment in enforcement. Now, that's some of it, but Here's the challenge this article mentions. The challenge, they talk about the racial wealth gap. Wow. You know, I, I just really, there's a chart here. It's called the U.S. Black Population by Wealth. <coughs> and they got it where all other races, <coughs> excuse me, and then blacks with the percentage of population and the money. This is sickening. It is really sickening. The richest 20% of American households have a net wealth of more than about $500,000. 3% of these households identify as black. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. We're trying to find solutions, y'all. Unfortunately, policymakers have often put the responsibility for fixing centuries of racial inequality back on the shoulders of black people. For decades, check this out, elected officials, see, almost every article I do, somehow politics gets involved. So once again, as I keep promoting early voting and getting out to vote for your local officials, I'm going to throw it in there again because once again, they're involved in this. And it was saying, for decades, elected officials argue that personal choices explain racial disparity. These claims have been thoroughly debunked as economists Trevor Logan and Derek Hamilton have demonstrated. Wow. <laughs> Even when black people of advanced degrees own their home, have high paying jobs and engage in other behaviors associated with asset building, their wealth is typically much lower than their white peers. Individual level factors are simply not the explanation for the difference in the economic fortunes of black and white people. Instead, the racial wealth gap should be recognized as the consequence of discrimination, public and private, throughout American history and continues to this day. Nearly 250 years of slavery were followed by a century of Jim Crow segregation and economic exploitation reinforced by state-sanctioned violence, 
Until the later 20th century, black people were excluded from public programs to encourage home ownership and higher education. Racial inequality persists in our contemporary colorblind system due to discrimination. Black people receive lower valuations on their homes and earn less money compared to white people performing the same jobs. Bias and public investment in criminal justice leave black communities simultaneously underserved and over-policed. And these civil rights violations also have serious economic consequences. Now, this is putting it out there and letting us know what we really, really are experiencing. See, black people in America have been systematically stripped of the wealth they have produced. Only a transformative national agenda can address the racial wealth gap because the disparity is the product of racism compounded over generations. Now, this article, I'm going to tell you something. I had never heard of Brookings.edu. This is it. This is the article telling us what needs to be done. Because I've experienced a lot of this, and I know for a fact I have white friends that make way more money than their black counterparts, and I can even say in my working environment, I know for a fact we got people in top jobs with no degrees, and we got people with two and three degrees with no top job. So I can say I see it every day. And I'm going to be the first to say, I know you don't need a college degree to do everything, but I'm going to tell you the difference. When I have someone that I'm talking to with no education in chiefs, directors, or whatever positions, knowing all the degrees I have, I can tell the difference of sometimes in certain roles, you do need to have that training, even if it's just management training. Poor management shows, I don't care what your title is if you don't have no proper training. And I'm sure everybody listening to this non-white have seen situations where they know good and doing well, somebody's making way more money than them and they're working harder, maybe even doing more and maybe even have a less um, important job title. So these are things that if you want to say, how can you as an employer help out? Look at the value of your employees. Look at the, I mean, when I did, let me tell you something. I've been a boss of many different departments. And, you know, when I used to do performance evaluations, I was one of the ones um, that we, we I'm going to just put it out there. We were able to pick who got the bonuses. Let's, let's say you gra- uh, graded people on a scale from one to five. You have five employees that are all five. Well, if all five can't get a bonus, you got to decide, and there's only one, you got to decide which one really deserves it. And I'm really fair. I remember one time I gave a girl, and I'm black, and she's white, and extremely racist. Um, there's no maybe, and she hated that she had to report to me because I was black. But she had done a great job that year, and I mean, it was hard to make a decision to give her a huge raise and bonus. But it was an interesting conversation because when we are in the conference room, She says to me, you know, I know you don't really like me and this and this and that. And I told her, I'm a fair person, but when I know for a fact you're racist and I know you try to do stuff to sabotage me and think you can get me in trouble and you can't, that gives me reason not to like you. But I did say, however, that year she did such a great job. I gave her a great raise and a huge bonus and she started crying. And she said, you know, I heard you were really fear and, you know, I was letting my racism and she admitted it um, overshadow what the possibility would be when we come in this conference room. And I appreciate you. And, and the reason why I'm telling this story is because when you're in situations where you're working with a lot of people and you're a minority and you're working harder in your mind, whether it's true or not. Um, usually it is true. You're working harder and you knowing people are making more money than you. It can be frustrating. And I was in that situation under that moment because what she didn't know is I knew exactly how much she made. I was her boss, but she made more money than me. I was like, oh, nope, nope, nope. So I was in a very unique situation where I could actually say something and speak up and turn things around. 
but a lot of people are not. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people don't even know. So if you're an employer, start really paying attention to all your employees, not just the minorities, but pay a little more attention to the minorities because I see it all the time. We have people who work so hard and they're not appreciated. And I want the employers to start addressing these situations because the wealth gap, unless somebody just comes from out of nowhere and drops millions and millions of dollars in the minority community, the wealth gap has to start with payrolls. I think this is my opinion, you know, and this article was so good. It has a topic to say addressing the racial wealth gap. And I just want to read a little bit about that. You know, this article is saying addressing the racial wealth gap. And it says it's impossible, of course, to design any policy agenda that would fully reserve the effects of centuries of racism. Justice this long delayed has meant justice denied to generations. But there is a crucial and vibrant conversation occurring today that envisions what reparations would look like. Now, see, I was kind of surprised to see that word reparations because non-blacks hear that and they get very offended. I have a lot of my friends who feel that reparations is like asking too much because as many people say, I have nothing to do with that. And I know they didn't have anything to do with racism, but everybody keep acting like other races didn't get paid for their pain and suffering. Go back to the American history and see how many other races have gotten reparations and they may have called it other things. I'm not going to discuss that, but I'm very familiar with the races that have, but not the black race. <laughs> This article goes on to say the most straightforward approach is for the federal government to provide money to descendants of American slaves. Okay, now we know that that's been talked about before. And there's an author named William A. Darity and A. Kirsten Mullen. They wrote a book, From Here to Equality, and they proposed a detailed program that addresses eligibility, total outlay, payment mechanism, and oversight of a potential reparation policy. Now, I've never heard of these authors or this book, but you might want to check out From Here to Equality to see how they laid out the progress of this. And they're saying that there are many other economic policies that are also commonly suggested to reduce the black-white wealth gap. So they name a whole bunch of books. Now, here's the thing. For some reason, they're not ever, probably in our lifetime, trying to help us get any type of closure in the wealth gap. Hmm. Now, one of the people say that a spending-based program of reparations is a moral imperative. It is also an urgent economic necessity. Wow. A serious reparation investment would provide enormous economic stimulus to the economy as a whole. It would infuse urgently needed funds in households and communities that have suffered from chronic underinvestment. But taxation, and particularly heavy and progressive taxation on wealth, also has a critical role to play in achieving racial equality. To understand why, we must look at the relationship between the racial wealth gap and overall wealth concentration. It is a shrinking fact that the 40th, excuse me, the 400 richest American billionaires have more total wealth, like I said, than all 10 million black people households combined. That is really interesting to know, okay? The startling statistic illustrates two broader economic realities with immense policy implications for racial justice in America. Okay, now we're talking about the 400 richest billionaires versus the black households. And they, excuse me, they break this down. They say, first, it suggests the scope of the total racial wealth gap, not the median gap between typical households, but the full disparity between the fraction of wealth held by black people 
and the percentage of the United States population. If black households held a share of the national wealth in proportion to their share of the United States population, as I mentioned earlier, it would amount the national wealth in proportion to their share. I'm um, excuse me. It would amount to 12.68 trillion in household wealth, rather than 2.54. So there's a whole 10.14 trillion that we're missing out on. Now they're saying, secondly, the rough wealth parity between 400 billionaires and 10 million black households indicates extreme and extremely racialized wealth concentration that exists in the United States. Now, a small fraction of Americans hold most American wealth, and they are almost exclusively white. Well, I don't know. It says even the wealthiest black households, moreover, are less wealthy than the wealthiest white households. We know that. According to Forbes 2020 list, the 571 white billionaires who make up 93% of all billionaires have about $2.8 trillion in personal net wealth. This is 96% of all billionaire held wealth and more than 3% of the total household wealth of the United States. The five black billionaires, I wonder if y'all can guess who they are, who make up 0.8% of all billionaires. Now listen to that. It's not even 1%. They have $14 billion, which is less than 0.5% of all billionaires held wealth. Wow, wow, wow. This is a problem. This is a problem. This is a problem. Now, this article was so deep. It was 17 pages. And it came, I want you all to go read this. I'm not going to read all 17 pages. But out of all the different articles I read, this seems to give more information. So I just wanted to read some of this. This is going into um, a little longer episode than expected. But I think that we need to start thinking about things like buying property and you know, the one thing we do buy a lot that depreciates is cars and clothes and jewelry. Some jewelry, depending on the jewelry, it can um, it can exceed and, and, and go up in value. So it looks like we need to start, first of all, trying to negotiate salaries, especially for the younger generation. Know your wealth. Don't forget that you went to school or got training to have a better life for you and your family. So don't be afraid to speak up. You know, they're talking about policy recommendations, which require heavy taxes on the wealth, which we keep hearing over and over and over again. Um, but once again, legislature, legislature, we have to really start talking about who we are putting in office, who are making these bills, because we've heard many different things, even with the current administration of how they're trying to help people um, come up in and, 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 and not just because they lost jobs during the pandemic, but for different reasons. I mean, look at the households that are losing houses and rent, people paying rent because they don't have a job or income. They're losing where they live. You know, think about when all these little temporary rules are gone, how this country might actually be. It's going to be the have and have nots for real. And it's like the middle class is getting into the have nots. Oh, boy. You know, there's a paragraph that says it is worth considering why it is rare to see calculations of the racial justice effects of progressive taxation. Some of the reasons are technical. There are many assumptions involved in assessing the impact of taxes on the wealth distribution. Moreover, the tendency to use the median as the measure of the racial wealth gap, while useful for the capture of typical experience, disguises the implications of extreme wealth concentration. And here's an article. This is still in this. I mean, here's a section in the same article. I love this article. And it says the difference between black wealth and white wealth in America is not only the result of exclusion. That's a factor. Exclusion. It is the result of exploitation. Exploitation. Wow. Mm -mm -mm. You know, 
I, there's just so much to read on here. I'm trying not to make this an hour episode. But when I heard all this, I was just floored. But as I always do, I put my um, sources at the end of the article, especially on um, my main podcast uh, hosting company, Podbean. But I think on all the other six uh, apps, it lists them as well. This is this is just so heartbreaking for me to even talk about this. And I know it's normally a marvelous motivating Monday, but we um, we decided to make it Money Movement Monday because what we need to do is figure out how to move our money that we do have and how to get more money that we can get and don't ask for. And the reason why I say can get and don't ask for, I remember about 15 years ago, a guy at my firm who was black, we really loved him. And we were in a meeting one time, and unfortunately, for 10 years of my career at my firm, I was in the administrative part where I was the only black. So when you got like 15 people in a room discussing what's best for employees, I'm the only black. And at that time, especially our staff was predominantly black. Of course, I'm going to be the voice. They just didn't realize how much of a voice I was going to be and how factual and researchable. You know, I research everything. I like to, to have conversations with the answers already. So if someone tries to pull something over on me, I already got the facts and the sources. That's just who I am. I'm a prove me type person. And he said something to me that was really, really unsettling. And he had said in a meeting, we were talking about raises and bonuses that he had worked for like five years and never got a raise or a bonus and never said anything because he was just grateful to have a job. That didn't sit well with me at all because everybody else had been getting them and it should have been addressed by his supervisor why it didn't happen. And of course, I got involved to make a long story short. He ended up getting years of back pay and all that because of me kind of voicing my opinion and how racist it was. And these are the type of things that we can start doing that are small, speaking up for what we deserve if we can. You don't have to get ignorant about it, but don't do do it so um, aggressively that it leaves a bad taste and you don't get anything and maybe consider insubordinate. But we have to start investing, investing in homes if you can. When I'm lis listening to how people are spending money on rent more than what me and some of my friends are paying for mortgage. And I know a lot of it has to do with bad credit, but I know a lot of white people with bad credit, they can get anything just because they're white. So let's start cleaning up our credit. Let's start networking because that's very important, which is one of the things I'm hoping this podcast show will eventually do. I'm trying to be part of a village and not just the black village, the, the world village, not just America, the world. And I like to talk about stuff that people kind of like push under the carpet. So let's uh, do Money move, Movement Monday. That's what this uh, episode is about. And try to learn how to move money. I have friends that are bankers that say that most of their clients are, are non-black because black people don't care about banking. We need to learn about banking. I did an episode previously um, on uh, investing in stock. And a lot of people don't realize you don't need a lot of money to invest. You got $100 that you can spend in the club. That same $100, you can break that up and buy a couple shares of different stock and make some money. So we need to, I didn't learn none of this. You know, I had a situation where I um, had a confrontation with someone at work. And one of the things that was said was, they did not understand why black people don't learn about business and money in school. And I had to tell them, and this was a black person that said it, which was shocking. All schools don't want us to know about future. Once we get past high school, we're kind of on our own. So we need to teach our young people. I'm participating in another mentoring program. That's one of the things I want to teach whoever I mentor about. And we need to just get involved. And if we are at the stage of our lives where we're retiring or don't really care, which unfortunately is not a good thing, let's get the young people involved and let them care and carry the torch to maybe pull some of this uh, wealth gap closer. But it really starts with the legislature and the, the um, politicians. And this is why I always tell people your local officials matter because they're the ones that's going to affect your everyday life. 
So I want you guys to listen to this um, interview that was done on Saturday on MSNBC where this guy talks about this. He actually wrote a book called 9.9%. I think I'm going to check it out. But let's just do better and let's just try to uh, move this money on this Money Movement Monday. I told you a moment ago how not every group is recovering from the pandemic equally. People who are better educated are doing better than those who are not. And similar trends exist along racial lines. The wealth of white Americans is up a whopping $25 trillion since the pandemic. The wealth of black Americans only up $1.5 trillion. And for Hispanic families, it is up just $600 billion. Now, conversations around inequality usually center on the top 1% or even the ultra-rich 0.1%. But my next guest says it's actually the upper middle class, those in the next 9.9% that are really drivers of inequality in this country. Joining me now is Matthew Stewart. He is the author of the new book, The 9.9%, The New Aristocracy That Is Entrenching Inequality and warping our culture. Matthew, it is great to have you. This is a book that caught my attention this week. It has been making a lot of headlines, and I wanted to talk to you about it uh, because we're seeing it in real time play out. And let's talk about this inequality here for a moment because according to data from the World Inequality Database, at the end of 2019 in the U.S., the bottom 50% held just 1.5% of all wealth in this country, while the top 1% held 34.9%. The 9% after them held even more at 35.8%. What is all of this wealth being shifted away from our middle class due to the overall health of our economy? Yeah, well, Eamon, thank you so much for uh, inviting me, and thank you especially for bringing up this really critical topic. It doesn't get enough attention. Um, Economic inequality, as I think you know, has been on a dramatic increase over the last 50 years, and it is at the root of so many of our problems. And right now, and now in Congress, we're watching a sausage get made, but I hope people will understand that this sausage is really important. It's not going to solve the problem, but we need to do this kind of thing to address this fundamental um, issue that we have. Um, and if, if I may, then let's take a look at those wealth distribution numbers that you had, because um, they tell us something pretty, pretty striking. Um, I can actually go into that top 1% and tell you that, in fact, it's the top 0.1% that's getting the lion's share of that 34%. In fact, they count for most of that. Um, and they're the ones who have been the real gainers over the last um, 50 years. So $2 billion in the 1970s would have gotten you at the top of the Forest 100 list. Um, now it doesn't get you on the list, right? So it's crazy. Um, but the people down below, the bottom 90%, you have them there at 27.8% for the middle 40 and 1.5%. That, that sounds right to me. Uh, those numbers have been going down dramatically. Why? Uh, so people have lost a tremendous amount of ground. And, and if we don't make it up, we're going to continue to face uh, the major political crisis that we are facing now. So let's talk about some of those uh, uh, strikers from, you know, John Deere and others. They recently pointed to the big pay increase that the CEO of the company reportedly received last year as a big reason for why they're on strike now. And as I mentioned, that's in addition to the record profits the company is on track for this year. Are we beginning to see workers in this country take a stand against this inequality? And how do you see some of these strikes impacting inequality, if at all? Yeah, I, I, look, the, the labor movement has been on a massive decline over the last 50 years. Um, uh, membership is way down, um, and the ability of labor to secure rights workers has just gone down. So this is an important first step. Honestly, I think uh, if there's a sunny side of the, the pandemic, I think it did shake people up. It, did, it, it was a psychological um, event for many people, and I think that that's part of what's going on here, as well as, of course, the... Um, the, the, the supply chain issues and the other um, economic pressures that are happening. But I, I think that we should look at these kinds of strikes as, as essentially a, a, a beginning, uh, an awakening, um, and hopefully a first step. But a lot more um, has to be done to uh, to get get workers essentially to earn the, the, the money that they're entitled to earn, which is now not going to them. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your book and, the, and one of the central uh, theses of it, if you will. You write a, a, a quote, today we tend to blame inequality on the meritocracy, but the reality is that we should blame the problems with meritocracy on inequality. Explain that to our viewers here on a Saturday night in a way that we can understand it. Do you believe America to be a meritocracy? Because it is part of what we sell ourselves about America. 
Yeah, no, it, 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 it's a defining myth, and I hope I'm not ruining anybody's um, Saturday night here. Uh, but um, look, as economic inequality rose, we had to come up with an explanation for it. And the most obvious explanation uh, that people can come up with is that, hey, some people are just so smart, they're so incredible. Um, but that's kind of denying a, a fundamental reality, right? People are not a million times taller than other people. They might be a few inches taller. They're, they're, they're smarter than other people, but they're not, you know, a, a thousand times smarter. Um, so what, what has happened is that we've seen this economic inequality arise. It's basically a result of uh, the excessive economic power on the part of uh, a lot of oligopolies and monopolies. It's a, it's a consequence of diminishing worker power. Uh, but we've come up with an, another explanation, which we like better, um, and that's that we're just so smart. Yeah. We're so special. Uh, and that's what this 9.9% .9 class has been very good at, convincing everybody that it's about their special brain power. All right, Matthew, sir, we're going to have to leave it at that. Fascinating book. I encourage everyone to get it. Very, uh, very interesting and very timely given the inequality that we're seeing play out. And as you mentioned, uh, watching what is happening in Washington with the, with the stalemate, not getting enough of those things passed that could help millions of Americans. Uh, Matthew Stewart, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Matthew. Now, the reason why I wanted to play that interview, I just happened to run across it on Saturday on MSNBC and... You know, I always tell people how it's so sad that everything comes down to politics. And it was interesting when they were talking about John Deere. And I was reading about the CEO who's getting a 160% raise. That's kind of crazy to me. So, the you know, it's so funny because I know growing up, I remember the labor union was very big and strong and it does seem like it is faded. And the really interesting part, I am um, when, you know, when I first went into my law firm, I didn't intentionally try to go into HR. I was trying to do whatever, practice law goes. You know, I went through all the steps, the secretary, the paralegal, go, you know, my first, I remember my very first law class and. I remember um, saying, but I wanted to do something that can impact people right away. So wanted to do some human resourcing and um, I figured out why not do it at the firm, which I ended up doing. And one of the things that was really difficult for me to get HR certified from SHRM as a member was the um, labor laws, the, 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 uh, the, um, what do you call them? The, 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 come on y'all. I can't even think of what I'm trying to say. The unions, I'm sorry, the union laws. I did not know how severely <laughs> uh, you had to really study for it. There was so many union laws, and it seems like what's happening right now, like at John Deere and other companies, is that the laborers are knowing their worth and they're trying to get more money, especially during the pandemic, because, you know, when you're put in a situation where you're packed a lot of people in, and that's what a lot of the different warehouses and different uh, industries, but COVID still being active and some people's not getting the vaccine or or shots or, or, or masking up, like I know it's mandatory for a lot of places, but my, my point is a lot of people are still getting sick. It's really amazing how... Uh, the people that are owning the companies are getting richer and richer, but the workers are getting poorer and poorer and their rights and medic, med, uh, medication and benefits aren't seeming to keep up with what's happening with the pandemic. I just thought that was an interesting interview. I actually think I might check out that book, but we have to always think about solutions. You know, when I bring up situations, I try to see if I can find some solutions and and as we know, a lot of these things I just read in this episode aren't all the solutions, but there are solutions. And employers, please pay attention to your employees and give them their worth, not based on their race, but based on what they're contributing to. And minority peoples especially start thinking about other ways we can buy things that will build this wealth. Everyone talks about home ownership is the number one thing. But I also want to talk about stock investment. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, you might want to go check out that episode that um, you don't need to be rich to buy stock. So we got to start doing things because obviously the politicians are the wealthier ones, not all of them, but a lot of them are, and they're going to do whatever they can to get wealthier. So as individuals, we're going to have to figure out how we can uh, move money and 
talk about um, coming out on the other end, which is why I wanted to do this Money Movement Monday. And before we go, um, I can't help but to mention Colin Powell. I guess um, there's so much on him. I don't know if I can do a short episode on him, but I think I may make him my fantastic fellow Friday. He passed away today due to at the age of 84 due to COVID complications. So I want to give a shout out to um, him for being an amazing man, not just the first African-American secretary of state, but just an amazing man. And as a black Republican, he was respected by all and um, even as a Republican and even as being black for the racist Republicans. And I just want to give my sincere condolences to his wife, family, kids, and close friends. And I wanted to end my episode just giving my condolences to General Colin Powell. Rest in peace, sir. Well, guys, this will end this episode. And I hope that the information that you received is inspiring, uplifting, and informative. As I always say, follow us on Twitter at Advocacy Ladies. That's capital A as in advocacy, capital L as in ladies. We are also now on Instagram, and forgive me because I'm still trying to learn Instagram, but we we are on Instagram also at Advocacy Ladies. And you can follow us on many of the podcast apps. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Pandora, Alexa TuneIn, and of course, my hosting podcast company, Podbean. If you have any questions or subjects you want us to look into, give us a call. We're at 404-855-7723. Or you can send us an email at podcasthostshaypate19 at gmail.com. And you know my favorite question is, what do you have to say? Thank you for listening.